Welcome to the Sports Surgery Clinic's Surgical Advances podcast on the table. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Franklin Miller, and this podcast is designed to delve into some of the research and evidence behind many of the commonly occurring orthopedic operative interventions. We get a chance to ask the questions many of you will be considering on what influences surgical decision making and how, as a referrer, we can put the surgeon and our patient in the best possible position. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Miss Anne-Maria Byrne, Consultant Orthopaedic Surgeon at the Sports Surgery Clinic. Uh, and Anne-Maria, I'm delighted you can join us. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. And these COVID-19 times, very strange. We're all operating very differently. Um, I'm sure our, our listeners would love to hear a little bit about your training in much more favourable times. Oh, sure. Um, well, I trained, did my uh, medical training in the College of Surgeons. Um, so it's probably not surprising I ended up going into surgery. I uh, did my basic surgical training in Dublin and then went on to the National Orthopaedic Trauma um, and Orthopaedic Training Scheme. Now, when I went into surgery, my plan was to be a transplant surgeon and it was only when I went um, and did some orthopaedics, I really loved it. I loved the outcomes, I loved the patients. Uh, so I decided to go off and do that then. So I ended up going around the country as you have to do in Ireland. Uh, and give your time to uh, each unit um, and then went abroad on fellowship. So I did my first fellowship in Wrightington in the UK uh, and I chose to go there because I wanted to work with uh, Professor Adam Watts, who is a famous elbow surgeon and then uh, was planning to come back to SSC doing elbow, wrist and hand. Uh, I then went to um, Antwerp to work with uh, Professor Roger van Riet, again, uh, a famous elbow surgeon, and uh, Dr. Frederick Verstreke, a famous wrist and hand surgeon. So the idea was to get um, a broad exposure to treatment and pathology that we really didn't have at a very high level in Ireland at that time. We um, had a lot of the, you know, basic bread and butter orthopedic operations and good treatment for elbow, wrist, hand fractures. And then we just wanted to bring it to the next level, particularly, you know, at SSC and bring back some of the newer techniques in arthroscopy and um, such like with, with certainly elbow and wrist. So I was happy to go and do those fellowships and uh, bring new skills back to Ireland. Um, so and hopefully developing them as I work as well. So I'm back in Ireland for about six years now at this stage. Fascinating. And, and, and that's a, quite a common path, isn't it, in, in ultra-specialist centres to have gone and studied um, under um, almost micro-specialisation centres around the world to bring that expertise back home. Absolutely. You know, in Ireland, we have a small population. Uh, a lot of our time is spent in dealing with day-to-day -day trauma. Um, and then, you know, to bring it to the next level, we can't get the exposure to the vast numbers of patients and the numbers of procedures. So that's why going to units where there are tertiary referral centres, you're getting referrals from all over the country in the UK. And certainly when I was in Belgium, you know, you were getting patients from um, all over Europe, people were flying in from, you know, Saudi Arabia based on the abilities and the fame of the surgeon. So you were getting to see all types of patients and in vast volumes. So you're getting, you know, huge exposure over a very short amount of time. Uh, and your skills are at that stage where you've got your basic skills. You're doing your, you're a competent operator at that stage. And it's then just building it up to the next level. Absolutely. And I think it's important for, for referrers to, to appreciate that, um, 
you only get good at something by doing it several times. And so therefore having that, that, that experience and that exposure is really important in terms of offering those skills. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, you'd still be in contact with the people that you've worked with in the past because, you know, when you get to that level, you 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 need to have access to your colleagues to discuss the difficult cases, the potential complications. And to have a network around the world is invaluable to help, uh, you know, for me to focus my mind on my complex cases where I need ex extra help that is outside of the expertise of the country and and you know it's it's great to have those contacts abroad uh, and it's it's something that all surgeons in Ireland have to do is go abroad and I think it brings back a wealth of information to the country. For sure and I, and I think you know it's, it's probably not just Ireland I think surgeons as part of training or or specialists um, in general will try and travel um, in order to to expose themselves uh, maximally. Um, we're going to focus today on the elbow. It's it's a vast area, and I suspect we'll get through part uh, and want to come back. But but we might start, if we may, just focusing on distal biceps ruptures. It's certainly something as a sport exercise medicine physician seemed to me to be increasingly common. Anecdotally, I always think, is there some history of underlying anabolic steroid use? But the mechanisms more varied. You might just talk us through that injury classification and how you approach it. Sure. Well, well, where the distal biceps attaches uh, is onto the radial tubercle, and we see a bimodal distribution of injuries. So, um, in my sports practice. I see a lot of younger guys in their early 20s who have had a direct impact to their forearm when they're playing rugby or GAA sports um, and they've been involved in a tackle. They have a flexed elbow and uh, they, somebody runs against their arm. So they get this forced uh, extension of their arm and that rips the biceps away from the tubercle. On the other hand, then you have the more classic picture where a lot of the research has been done uh, on the older patients who are in their 40s. And that's where they're maybe a little bit out of condition, where they have been lifting something at home, doing DIY, maybe lifting a, a sofa, a bed or something like that. And they feel a pop in the you know, antecubital fossa and get a lot of bruising in that region and uh, feel that they don't have the same strength in you know, supination and flexion. And they come into you some weeks later going, what's going on? Um, in with all of those are another group that is certainly what you're talking about with the anabolic steroids. So these are the ones that are probably hidden. They're not in the literature so much, but they are becoming more and more apparent. In the literature, one of the major uh, papers looking at, at the epidemiology of this was from the 1990s, Saracen. And looking at his numbers for a population in Ireland, we'd be looking at probably 30 patients with complete distal biceps ruptures in the course of a year. Now, last year I operated myself on over 30. So certainly just looking at those numbers, you know, there has to be an increase in the numbers of people with sure. the, the condition. Um, so why are they getting them? So is it because they're working out more? Is it because they have more risk factors? Um, in Wrightington, Wrightington in the UK, where I did part of my fellowship, is uh, just outside Manchester. And there is a, a big bodybuilding community there. And when I was there, they were looking at the numbers of patients who were on anabolic steroids and were attending various cardiology clinics for side effects for these. And we found that there was increasing numbers in those populations of um, people with various tendon ruptures. So, 
anecdotally, there definitely has to be a link between them where the tendon is stiffer and shorter, and that's putting excess pressure in that region. And we know that the with the steroids in particular, that they denature some of the collagen, so you create a tendinopathy, which potentially sure. weakens the tendon. Do you see histologically differences? So, so is this an avulsion, or is this the tendon itself which is degenerating when you look at it operatively? Well, certainly in the younger group, it's definitely an avulsion. There's no doubt about it. They have a very specific history. It's a classic history that they give. In the other groups, uh, part of the questions that you'll ask them is, did they have prodromal symptoms? Were they noticing an ache in their forearm? And most of these guys now are going to the gym, you know, in... 20 years ago, 30 years ago, men in their 40s may not have been as bothered, whereas now everybody is going to the gym and doing some weight work. And sometimes they will say, yes, I did notice when I was doing my weights or my curls or my, um, my you know, planks that I was getting a few aches and pains and niggly pains in that mm. region. So I think that there are the older group of guys who are getting problems where they get partial tears and then have something catastrophic happens when they lift something or a child jumps into their arms and they catch them and then it goes where they have this this um this you know resisted um extension with a flexed um um elbow uh, and as a result of that you have this this uh, you know ripping of the tendon and Clinically, uh, at the time of surgery, certainly they look different. Um, with the patients, and they're not always the most transparent and honest with you, uh, the ones who may have been on anabolic steroids, but you'll see a great big you know, muscle and you'll see a small short tendon. Um, and you're suspicious if they have any kind of signs of stray on their skin. Um, you know, things like that, that we watch out for. And certainly I would always warn our myonesis as well, just in case they have any underlying cardiac issues related to the use of steroids. Um, I always ask the patients, uh, but they don't, you don't always get the answer. No, um, absolutely. Yeah. The other quite thing that I always ask about besides the prodromal symptoms, steroids is smoking, because throughout the literature, there is an association in the older groups, obviously not the direct trauma groups, in the older groups uh, of uh, over seven times more likely to be smokers than not. So uh, there has to be an association of uh, smoking and nicotine use with, um, with uh, distal biceps ruptures. And then you have patients who've had it on one side and they come back to you on the other side, or they may have had a partial tear or a tendinopathy on one side. And I always counsel the patients when I see them, these are the things to look out for if you have a complete rupture. And I've had people come back to me saying, oh no, the side that you know you were looking after two or three years ago is fine, I ruptured the other side. So um, you know they, they obviously have a tendency to it. And there may be a genetic, some studies have looked at the genetics, uh, a tendency to tendinopathy and ruptures. And also there has been a suggestion that there is an anatomical difference in the shape of the attachment to the radial tubercle where there is a shorter distance between the radius and the ulna and it causes the tendon to be pinched in pronosupination and as a result there's kind of a watershed area there where it weakens the tendon um, in that area and predisposes to uh, rupture. And it was I was interested to hear about the mechanism in the younger more athletic patients in terms of the contact so it, that's a sort of a resistive um, they're trying to resist forced extension of the that, elbow. 
exactly yeah yeah and it's it's uh, it's it's very it's really classic they and the thing what's wonderful about it now i do a lot of education with you know the teams or the gps and the physios and it's a lot of the time it's the physios who are picking this up uh, it may be missed in a e or whatever because you know they do an x-ray and the x-ray doesn't show anything so they're sent off going are oh, you grand and it's the physiotherapist who are picking it up so i'm getting a phone call from a physiotherapist because for these injuries you know when we're operating on them we want to get the patients in quick Ideally, we'd like to get them, you know, sorted out and operated on within three weeks, because uh, otherwise uh, it gets more difficult to release the tendon and the muscle and everything scars down. So it goes from being a lovely, you know, technical, elegant operation to being a difficult operation, uh, you know, after three weeks. But um, certainly, I think as people are being more aware of this and seeing more of it, they know what they're looking for and they're referring them earlier, which makes certainly the patient's life and my life a whole lot easier. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a real change, certainly since I've come back where we were seeing people with chronic problems, whereas now we're getting them acutely and it's making a huge difference for the patients and the recovery. And that leads on very nicely into, I, I guess, the clinical assessment. What do you examine and how do you differentiate between perhaps a partial and complete tear or, or what are we looking for? Sure. Um, so I'm, you know, very lucky in that I am very subspecialized. So people come looking for me to do these. Uh, and a lot of my colleagues will already have had an MRI scan or something like that. And if there's any suggestion that there's been a problem with this, I will always organize for them to because I'm getting these from all over the country, you know, and um, so they're coming a long way to come and see me. So prior to my examination of them, I'll often get them to have a, an MRI scan and I'll ask them to get a FABS view. That's F-A-B-S which is a flexion, abduction and supination view where the patient, it's, it's not a very comfortable position in the MRI scanner. They have to lie on their belly with their arm over their head uh, in, um, in flexion and abduction. And it gives me an idea of the length of the tendon and how much it's retracted. And it'll tell me, um, you know, if I do have to operate on it, you know, what, how long it's going to take and what I need and if I need any special equipment. So the patient comes up to me armed with this, um, with this MRI scan. When I see them, usually it's a little while down the line. Often they'll come in and um, they will say or show me a photograph on their phone, actually, of uh, a huge area of bruising, which is, usually goes with gravity over to the medial side of their elbow. Um, and uh, when I look at them first, I examine both sides and you will just see a very subtle hyperextension on the side with a complete rupture. You may not see that where there's maybe a few fibers left or um, that. So um, it is because the tendon is, is gone and it has retracted up into the arm from the forearm. So comparing one side with the other, you'll see that. Um, and then I just bring them through a gentle range of motion of their elbow just to make sure that the pathology, you know, and the diagnosis is correct. Uh, I will then examine them on the hook test. So for that, I get them to bring their shoulder into uh, 90 degrees of abduction, their elbow at 90 degrees and their forearm in neutral rotation and get the patient to make a fist. So if you go into their antecubital fossa, then you can actually feel the tendon. So if it is a partial rupture, you can nearly feel you know, the thickness of the tendon. And I suppose it's with experience that I would be able to feel is it thicker or thinner than I would expect and compare with the contralateral side. 
sometimes patients don't it's only a tendinopathy rather than a rupture so you'll feel they'll feel pain when you do that examination um, also when you're looking from one side to the other you'll notice that the distance from the crease of the elbow in the antecubital fossa to the actual muscle belly is increased on the side of a complete rupture because the muscle will have retracted up um, and that's even in the acu very acute phases you'll see that as well um, clinically you can often feel the stump of the distal biceps uh, floating around in you know either a, a pouch of blood or fluid or things like that there um, and after that um, I will also just assess just a quick neurological assessment uh, because I just always want to check uh, beforehand with regards to posterior interosseous nerve to make sure everything is fine because these are potential nerves that are at our risk you know at risk at the time of surgery so just want to document that everything is fine prior to uh, going down the route of any surgery. And so MRI as part of this clearly the yeah. clinical examination is your is your go-to MRI is is assisting that decision-making process? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I it it um is it, patients usually arrive up with an MRI scan anyway. For me, um, sometimes patients will give a slightly strange history where they say, "Oh, it was sore. It wasn't right for maybe last you know a few months ago." But then I had this episode more recently, so it may have been that they had a partial tear. You know, maybe three, four months ago down the line, and then the, an acute event more recently. Uh, and that just helps me planning the operation because if it is the case that, you know, there was a possibility that there is a lot of scar tissue around there or they have a lot of retraction of the biceps, I may need to plan for a graft. I may need to prepare the patient that I would do something like a high flexion repair where the elbow will be quite stiff and they will need further rehabilitation over a longer period of time after surgery or the best opportunity is where you have the patient who comes into you acutely and you know you're going to be able to fix it acutely with a good full range of motion from you know day one after surgery so that's that's the result that you want but that's not always the patient you get so uh, you have to prepare yourself in theatre that you have the equipment that you need and you have to prepare the patient for the recovery and rehabilitation afterwards. And that's interesting in terms of, of the, the potential for needing a graft. So do you want to just talk us through what that repair surgery involves and what it actually looks like? Well, we would try and avoid a graft. and We can do an awful lot to get away without a graft. Um, um, so first line is there has been debate over the years whether or not you use a, a two uh, incision or one incision um, surgery to for the biceps. Uh, most elbow surgeons have drifted towards a one incision surgery as there are less uh, issues uh, with um, ossification and stiffness and uh, things like that. So we do an operation under general anesthetic um, where I make an incision that's about three centimeters in length over the radial uh, tubercle. Um, I always have an assistant because it's important with nerves in this area that the assistant holds the arm in certain positions to avoid traction 
on the lateral antibrachial uh, nerve, which can cause paresthesia down in the, the lateral side of the arm, down and towards the thumb. And then also, most importantly, the posterior interosseous nerve, um, because that can be damaged and the patient could potentially have a wrist drop. So, um, you know, the, your assistant needs to work closely with you when you're doing this operation. We dissect down to the radial tubercle, prepare the tubercle, uh, and then I have to go looking for the distal bicep stump, which is retracted up into the arm. Um, usually, if you get it within three weeks, uh, you can find the sheath and there will be fluid and serous fluid and blood within that sheath. And you can track along the sheath up to where the biceps is. If it's longer than that, uh, you have to do a bit of release and dissection uh, to release the, the, the tendon itself. And then we prepare the tendon with a whip stitch and I use an endo button repair. And then we use a technique uh, that was uh, put forward by Greg Bain and uh, Buddy Savoie, um, one in New Zealand and one in Texas. And I've adapted it based on what I learned with uh, Roger, Roger Van Riet and um, in the UK as well. Uh, and, and you make your own of these operations based on, on, on your time and your experience. But uh, we use a, a technique which is similar to the technique for the ACL hamstring graft, where we drill the radius and pass the endo button through the bone itself and flip the button on the on the opposite side of that. So on one side of the radius, we use an eight millimeter tunnel on the other side, a 4.5 millimeter and pass the endo button which is whip stitched to the, the biceps through that tunnel and then flip the button on the other side. And it gives a really strong fixation. And you can actually hook your finger around the tendon and lift the arm off the operating table if you have it in the right position. Um, obviously, the position of the arm has to be held in supination to protect the posterior interosseous nerve. And if the tendon is a bit shortened, it's perfectly acceptable to fix uh, with the elbow in some flexion because that stretches out in the six weeks after surgery. And that's what we try and do these days to avoid a graft. If we have to use a graft, there are various grafts uh, that you can source from the patient using either a, a palmaris graft or a slip of triceps, but then there's a lot of, of extra dissection uh, and possible comorbidity just from taking the graft. Um, you can also use uh, a weave with uh, um, an Achilles tendon um, cadaveric graft, but again, they're difficult to a source uh, in, in this country and they are very expensive. Um, some patients, particularly competitive bodybuilders, don't particularly like the use of a graft because it may require the use of a second incision in the arm. Uh, and also it can sometimes give this double bubble effect where you have swelling uh, in the arm and that actually takes points off them for their competitive bodybuilding later on. Um, so certainly for any competitive bodybuilders, we avoid that kind of approach. Um, so I'm using grafts less and less now, particularly with getting the patients in faster and also um, using a high flexion fixation and it works very well. And, and what does the post operative period look like in terms of immobilization and range of movement? Um, what I do now is I 
use uh, a wool and crepe that runs from the knuckles of the fingers all the way up to the arm because these patients are usually quite muscly um, they swell uh, and they can bleed just from the tunnels uh, that are drilled through the bone and what you want to do is um, just keep them quiet in a sling and allow them to have gentle range of motion within the limitation of their bulky bandage. So that keeps them quiet. The biggest problem that I have with these patients is keeping them quiet in the post-operative period because they actually feel great afterwards and they want to get back to sports. Sure. And you need to let their wound heal. You need to let everything settle down. You need to let the tendon integrate into the bony tunnel. So keeping them quiet at that stage is important. I then see them back myself at two weeks after surgery. I check their wound and I start them off at a gentle range of motion. Now, most patients who I get in the early stages, I will certainly get a full range of motion of their elbow on the operating table. And I would expect to find a good range of motion uh, at the two weeks mark. I then I give them a protocol to go to their local physiotherapist, because remember, a lot of these are coming from, you know, Kerry or Donegal or they could be coming from anywhere so it's very difficult to bring them up and down to Dublin so I start them off and then I give a protocol to their local you know their club or their um, local physiotherapist to work with them the first six weeks is pure range of motion exercises that is it and then after six weeks I allow them to work on building up strength and conditioning and putting in weights starting off with you know small light little weights maybe a pound two pounds and then building up from there uh, the biggest problem that I have with these patients are they want to go ahead very quickly. They want to move ahead quickly and um, they can't do that. You have to respect the fact that the surgery was there um, and it, it needs the surgical wound needs to heal. And, and what ultimately, in terms of a restriction, are they likely to find if everything's gone well? Um, in in terms of restriction, in terms of range of motion, I would expect them to get their full range of motion back. I would expect them to have 90% of their strength in um, supination and in flexion compared to the contralateral side within three months um, and building up over time. Long term, I would expect them to have near same strength of motion as the contralateral side. Um, there are potential issues now again it has not been in my experience but in the literature there is a potential issue of re-rupture but in the literature it has been associated with early re-rupture i think it may be related to the fact that when the endo button is flipped that it is flipped in the canal of the bone rather than outside the bone I always x-ray my patients right at the end on the operating table to make sure that endo button is in the right place. Some people might think it's a bit of overkill. And in the literature, a lot of the uh, you can see throughout the papers that they are not x-raying them. Um, the reason that I do it is because I saw one patient on fellowship where it was flipped within the canal and we had to redo it immediately on the table. It only added on, I'd say, an extra, you know, five minutes onto the operation. But it was excellent to know that it had flipped in the wrong place and we were able to fix it straight right there rather than it being coming a problem and having to go in you know six weeks down the line um you know to to revise something so um i'm a bit careful with that and always take you know a shot at the end of the operation to avoid complications with that later on um so with your bodybuilder sorry with your bodybuilder trying to gain bulk back um 
and in terms of uh, trying to regain that strength and that volume of training, um, I, I'm assuming at some point you're going to lose control of this patient because they're, you, you've repaired them, they've got good range of motion, they feel good. How comfortable are you with that rate of loading at sort of what point? So when do you sort of say, well, look, actually, you know, look, I'm happy with this graft. Sorry, I'm happy with this repair. Um, you can pretty much do what you like. Oh, I'm I'm very I've, I'm very slow with them, uh, particularly the bodybuilders, because uh, they always if I say six, six months, they'll say, oh, we'll cut it down to four. You know, so yeah. I try and push it out as long as possible. Um, I, I put them on the same regime as you would, you know, after an ACL or things like that and say to them, you know, in terms of bone and graft integration you have to be looking at you know for sports guys you may be out for the season you can you know start you know training but not contact you know uh, certainly at three months uh, and then work on getting back to contact sports later on after that the bodybuilders are a very special group because they get so many of their endorphins from their sport and you know it was you know they will come into you extremely upset about this injury because um they really really want to get back so it's a lot of it's a lot of time with them uh, and building it up slowly um, a lot of them will work with their own um, you know physical trainers and physiotherapists so they will have their own idea and I have to put the reins on them a lot and there are sometimes tough conversations to be had because you do not want to be in the situation with a re-rupture and having to do a revision because that is likely going to end up needing a graft and that's not the result they want. And actually, I guess that, that was the next question, really, in terms of the potential complications, that the worst one, clearly a, a re-rupture and then a, a more technically demanding procedure afterwards. What are what are our sort of other more sort of common complications or or things to be aware of post-surgery? Well, I'm, I'm touching wood here, as I say it. Um, obviously, the one we always talk like I go through a video with these patients just to show them very quickly. You know, this is what the because they, they come in well educated before they arrive to me. So they uh, they pretty much know what's going on. They've looked it up. They've spoken to people about it. But it's for me to tell them you've you've you know read everything on Dr. Google. But we are going to pin down what we're going to do here. And this is what the regime that we are going to do, you know, as part of the doctor patient relationship. And this is what I expect you to do and this is what i will give you know to you so it's important to um for them to understand all of that complication rates with this touch wood i've been lucky uh, there is definitely um a risk to the posterior interosseous nerve and as i mentioned before people can get a wrist drop associated with that touch wood it hasn't happened to me but um, it uh, certainly is in the literature. Uh, it's less than um, 2% uh, rates in the literature. You have to be careful where you put your tunnel. And you usually, in your, when you're looking at the radial tubercle, you divide it into thirds and you put it uh, your tunnel in the most proximal third and with the arm in supination. So I always make sure my assistants are ready everything's in supination, everybody is comfortable before I drill those tunnels because what you don't want to do is for the arm to be moving at any stage during the drilling of those tunnels because that's the most dangerous stage. So I have to consent the patients to the fact that, you know, if there's an issue there, uh, that's one thing. The other thing that I'm doing now uh, to avoid the complication of any kind of bleeding or hematoma formation after surgery is I'm using tranexamic acid, which uh, has been used... Um, within knee and hip surgery over the last few years to uh, stop bleeding or hematoma formation. Um, one of our colleagues in sports surgery clinic, Hannah Mullet, has done a paper on this with latter-day uh, procedures uh, to avoid 
hematomas after shoulder surgery and has got great results with that. So I'm also using it afterwards to avoid hematoma formation uh, at the site of the uh, surgical scar. Because remember, these guys are big guys, they're muscly, they're strong, and they have loads of veins in this area. So there is a potential for bleeding either from veins or from uh, the tunnels themselves. And I found that since I'm using that, you know, I'm much happier with the results with the swelling and things like that. And the patients are happier as well. So, you know, I've certainly changed my management there. Other potential risks would be uh, paresthesia on the lateral side of the elbow. Or, and the arm going down towards the thumb where there's been uh, traction on the lateral antibrachial um, nerve. This is usually just a neuropraxia and it's, it's probably related to um, the guy's been big muscly and the assistant, you know, using retractors, just pressing down on the nerve. I found that any patients who have this, and I find that, you know, in the literature, I think my numbers for that are about 10% and that would fit in with the literature, it, that that neuropraxia settles down within about um, two weeks and it's not a long-term problem. And so for the for the contact sport athletes, you mentioned it earlier in terms of, of needing that progressive, almost ACL-like return to play measures. For contact sport, is six months the guideline in terms of time? I know we're going to use criteria-based progression, but but would that be reasonable? I usually, I say that, but I know that they go probably go back a little bit sooner than that, being <laughs> realistic about it. Um, certainly, I'm very strict about the early stages because the complications that are seen with re-rupture in the literature has been in the early stages. So it's in the first, you know, months that you see the problems. And these yeah. are people who have been misbehaving or not listening to things. So that's when the problems arise. So um, I certainly say no weights, you know, from the weights start off, you know, from six weeks to three months and then from three months you can start your training so for the rugby training they can start working on their catches you know they can work on on you know building up their you know prop you know their their usual power in their upper limb i know i say six months but i know they go back sooner than that I'm, I'm and i'm i'm completely realistic about it you know but um i just have to give them a guideline for that Absolutely. And look, um, let's stay around the elbow um, and and let's change tack, if I might. Um, one of the most incredibly common um, conditions, be it in general practice, in sports medicine, in orthopedics, common extensor origin tendinopathy. We know it's, it's incredibly uh, challenging in terms of morbidity with our, our patient base, um, thinking tennis elbow, pain around the lateral elbow. Um, and there are lots of poorly evidence-based interventions. We know John Orchard showed that injecting corticosteroid around here is not good in terms of collagen morphology. It's good for pain, but not necessarily good in terms of long-term um, benefit. And the evidence for platelet-rich plasma here in terms of injectables is mixed. Um, Lee's meta-analysis suggests it's better than corticosteroid, but if corticosteroid is not very good, then better than that's not necessarily um, great. Um, sure. There are a bunch of patients, obviously, who respond well to exercise treatment um, based around that sort of tendinopathy, um, increased heavy loading uh, in a very controlled range of motion. But there are some patients that we see who just don't improve. Um, if we're excluding corticosteroid injections here, what's next from a surgical point of view? Sure. Um, well, interestingly, um, just uh, in the last, I think it was last month, um, 
Adam Watts um, has published a paper looking at PRP. Now, he does the leukocyte-rich PRP, and I know he is very into the whole concept of what is the quality of the PRP that you're injecting. Um, and he has suggested that use of PRP reduces uh, the likelihood of going on to surgery uh, in 70% of patients that he worked with. So that is a definitely interesting option for you know lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow. Um, what you're saying is absolutely right about steroids. There are people who come in and they want a quick fix. They want you know a shot of steroids. They heard about somebody who was cured with a steroid injection, and it's very difficult to counsel them that nobody was ever cured by a steroid injection. It is purely for symptomatic pain relief, and you must go under your other program with associated with that. PRP is is you know an exciting new biologic treatment that you can use for that as a stopgap, and the results of you know seventy percent uh, you know avoidance of surgery is is great. I probably in my practice am operating on possibly less than, you know, certainly less than 10% of all patients that present to me. And there's no doubt that it is an absolute tsunami of patients that are arriving in the door with tennis elbow. By the time they arrive to me, they have probably had at least a few steroid injections, a bit of physiotherapy. They said they wore the support brace. And, you know, I always make sure that I go through everything with them, make sure they're using a not a support brace, but a counterforce brace um, to to actually give a rest to the outside of the elbow, that they were appropriately doing their exercises and that they have realistic expectations as to what the natural history of this condition is. I think I mean. I mean, I think that that would certainly fit in terms of the numbers with our experience in, in sports medicine. We might see 30 or 40 of patients with this condition uh, every week. Um, and we have been using platelet-rich plasma, the Arthrex um, version of it, which is uh, leukocyte-rich, yeah. and certainly anecdotally had some, some positive results. But there is definitely this group who, no matter what we throw yeah. at them, They've done a very good strength program. Yeah. Um, they just can't tolerate well, it. Well, at that stage, usually most patients will have an, had an MRI scan, but I always will check the MRI scan to make sure they've no other underlying pathology, such as uh, radiocapitellar arthritis. They may have had a previous fracture maybe 20 years ago and now have you know, an arthritis in that region. Uh, make sure they don't have any underlying ganglia or anything else like that coming from the joint, which can all mimic tennis elbow. Uh, there are a small group of people who can get this uh, synovial uh, radial plica, which is an infolding of the synovium in the region of the radial head just beneath the um, ERCB tendon, where which is the one associated with classic tennis elbow. Um, and just make sure that that doesn't exist because that can mimic you know, lateral epicondylitis also. I'd also check and examine the patient to see that they don't have any symptoms of um, uh, you know, radial tunnel syndrome or a PIN uh, entrapment just in the region of the supinator. I see that most in uh, people who come in who are rowers or use a rowing machine a lot. So uh, there is a, there are a small number of people. So you just want to make sure that the diagnosis is absolutely right. I then want to see that they've had six months of good quality conservative treatment and they have followed that. And if they have done all of that and they have failed that, then surgery is the next option. Now, things were put into play with surgery by uh, Nurschel in the late 70s, and he would be kind of the classic technique where he described debriding of the tendon. Um, 
using, which is now called the inertial technique after him. Um, what I use now is is a technique uh, again produced by Bain in in New Zealand, where and I saw it with Roger, Roger van Riet was using it in Belgium, um, where you go in uh, surgically as a day case under general anaesthetic and make an incision over the um, lateral epicondyle and go down to the tendon. I then split the tendon. And everything that you see is really underneath. So it's deep down, just between the upper layers of the tendon and the capsule of the joint. And what's in there, normal tendon is lovely white strands of tendon. And this stuff is gray, jelly-like stuff. And sometimes even in the worst thing, my, my life was so glamorous, Andy, when you pull it out, it's nearly like snotty tissue. It's awful looking stuff. And you want to bride that, take that away. And then the healthy normal tissue, I use a, a knotless suture anchor, which I drill into the lateral epicondyle. And then I stitch the tendon back down onto that. And I find that that is the best uh, result. Unfortunately, um, in terms of the studies looking at different techniques, no one technique has come up, but we've been exposed to all of those. So anecdotally, I find this the best technique. And I think there are various reasons why. Number one, you're drilling the bone. So you're getting all of your lovely um, uh, growth factors, cytokines and things like that, purely from you know preparing the bone and drilling the bone and putting the anchor into that. In a similar way, when you're doing you know a rotator cuff on the shoulder um, um, and you know patient or they talk about doing a subacromial decompression, you're getting all of the good cytokines into that area, which helps with tendon healing and sticking down onto the bone. By suturing the remaining tendon back onto the bone, you may be shortening it by a millimetre or two. And as long as you counsel the patient that afterwards you're go they're going to feel a bit of tightness in their forearm and that will have to be worked on with physiotherapy, they're prepared for it. And then um, you have good mechanical strength in the tendon because it has been reattached to the bone. I then treat them in a similar way as I do with the distal biceps afterwards is I put them into a bulky bandage running from their hand to above elbow again to keep them quiet in a sling for the first two weeks and then after that they start their rehabilitation so the first two weeks they're allowed to have a gentle range of motion within the limitations of the sling most patients will come back and say they had very good relief of symptoms early on some of them will say, I still have a bit of soreness when I'm lifting a cup or things like that. You know, that's to be expected in the early days after surgery. They will have some soreness over the lateral epicondyle with pressure over that region for some months afterwards, purely because I've drilled into that. But that settles down. And I think certainly in terms of success rates for that type of surgery, you're looking at numbers of, you know, certainly over 90 percent um, in terms of, you know, happy patients and the ones who come back who are maybe still sore it's usually right over the lateral epicondyle where they're sore but they have a good functional range of motion and they have good results in terms of you know um lifting going back to sports and that and i'd certainly let them back to sports you know within three months yeah absolutely and i think it's easy to underestimate the actual morbidity this oh, this yeah. can cause i, I mean i think my, it was actually memorable of one of my first patients that i saw when out in australia 
um, in Melbourne that, you know, a, a guy who was using a, a power tool, he's a carpenter, using a power tool and changed the grip diameter of the mm. power tool to, to put in multiple screws. But he was out of work for sure. four, five, sure. six months because, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's, and it's, it's such a condition which is so easily put down to, well, look, you know, look, it's a tennis elbow, you know, and I, and I think we possibly underestimate um, the potential for surgery to benefit that oh, group yeah. if very carefully selected. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's careful selection. Again, the patients who come in who want a quick fix, you know, um, who are playing league tennis and things like that, you know, I do have the discussion and say, listen, there are risks associated with everything. So this is a self-limiting condition in the vast majority of people. It'll burn out. So therefore, you have to go through your conservative measures before we go down the route of this. It, for me, it's quite a satisfying operation. And I, I don't think I'd go back to any of the older techniques because this one works so well and the patients are very happy with it early on, you know. And, you know, we're benefiting now to the use of these knotless suture anchors that have come online over the last 10 years or so. And they're lovely quality. They cause less problems with impingement. They cause less problems for irritation under the skin. Because remember, you know, that area is, is um, you know, there's not a lot of fat coverage. There's no muscle coverage in that area. So um, you just need to be aware of that. I am always careful with patients who've had a whole lot of, you know, injections in that region. And certainly I recommend if they are having injections, very, very much the maximum of three. Uh, and the reason uh, is potential for, you know, skin issues, fat necrosis, which can cause problems with skin cover after surgery. So uh, I have had to change the position of my incision in some patients who've had multiple injections because their skin quality has not been good. And, and that, it, it makes huge amounts of sense. And, and often, you know, the, the temptation is for the patient to go back and back and back to whoever's doing those injections um, in order to get short-term relief. And, of course, there's always the scenario where, you know, a patient has something absolutely vital they have to do where a corticosteroid injection may well be indicated for pain relief rather sure, than necessarily yeah, and as long fixing as we're aware that of problem. That, that's fine, you know. Absolutely. And look, as part of my research for this podcast, I, I came across a, a protocol by Matash for a sham randomized control trial of arthroscopic release um, uh, of that common extensor origin tendon. And I was quite excited thinking actually the paper would be there somewhere, but actually the RCT hasn't been um, performed, but the protocol's there. Um, I came across two patient reported outcome me measures, DASH, the disability of shoulder and hand, and the Mayo Elbow Performance Score, MEPS. Certainly, I wasn't familiar with those. And, and I wanted just to ask whether or not they're certainly sort of patient reported outcome measures that could be used to track improvement post-surgery, but also to track progress through rehabilitation. Absolutely. Uh, now, for a tennis elbow, there is a tennis elbow um, scoring system as well, specifically for that. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's been used certainly more and more. The dash we use throughout the upper limb um, scoring system, it, it runs from zero to 100. So the closer that you are to zero, the better the outcome. Uh, and that is a great that's been in use for years at this stage and it looks at functionality as well as the symptoms so it's the basic day-to-day -day stuff like dressing yourself washing yourself your activities of daily living as well as symptoms and we use that you know for for all kinds of upper limb pathology and it's you'll see it in the literature all the time and it's one of the ones that is used most commonly um and the mayo elbow for, performance score certainly is is i I don't use it as much as I would the dash, but uh, it is certainly useful as well. I don't, I'm 
probably should use them more with the tennis elbow ones. And it, I think it is great. It's a great, um, you know, there's all this fashion with these patient uh, reported outcomes and things like that. But sometimes the patients need a little bit of a spur on and a psychological, um, um, you know, boost because they feel as if they're just a little bit miserable and they feel awful and they feel off. They they were doing well with their physio and their strengthening and their injections or whatever. And they had, you know, went out to the garden over the course of a weekend and, you know, now have had a flare up of their symptoms. So if you can do something like the DASH score or do some sort of a score and say, well, this was your score six months ago and this is where your score is today. It's, it's great for them as well because it gives them a boost if they see that's improving. And I do use it for, you know, pre and post surgery as well. Um, particularly when I'm operating for elbow stiffness, I think it's very helpful because that's very protracted recovery afterwards and patients can become downhearted. So it's not just for research purposes. It is very helpful for research purposes and it gives you a guide, you know, rather than just your visual analog pain scales and things like that. It gives you a guide as to the functionality and symptoms of the patient and gives you a number that you can record and look at it at, you know, maybe two weeks at six weeks at six months. Um, uh, and, and it helps the patient as well. Absolutely. I think it's probably something that we we probably all know about, but underuse in the sort of in the busyness of a clinic. Um, but actually, I think you're absolutely right. It would be for a patient to be able to have a visible score of either improvement or counterintuitively, the almost a deterioration can give justification for further intervention. So I think they're probably more useful than we give them credit for outside of those papers. I think you're right. Absolutely. Uh, I think it just takes a little bit of extra time to be able to get them uh, to fill it out and then obviously storing and things like that. But it's it's, it's um, something that we do more and more. And, uh, you know, it certainly it is done, obviously, using different scoring system, but uh, in terms of joint replacements. So uh, in all the national orthopedic hospitals for hips and knee replacements, they're doing this anyway. You know, and it is part of the protocol um, for all patients for follow up uh, and pre-op assessment is to do these kind of assessments using um their various different uh, scoring systems. So I don't see there's any reason why we shouldn't do it either. Uh, we're not doing it to assess the quality of the or longevity of implants, but we are looking at it to audit ourselves and to audit, you know, how patients are responding as well. So I, I think it, it definitely they definitely have uses there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in terms of a referral process, if you were to say, look, you know, this patient's um, DASH score has remained consistent despite intervention over three months or six months of, of, of rehabilitation, actually, it's a very powerful argument yeah. for actually, look, well, there is another stage here. We need to go off and do something else. That's, it is. It is powerful, actually. You've, it's a, you've made a very good point there. Um, you know, it is a guide. If they're not improving, then we, you have to look at it as being, uh, you know, one indication for, you know, further interventions such as surgery. And it, it would be helpful for them. Uh, as well um it just it's it's going to take a little bit of time and what's the word um uh, commitment on our part to make it as part of our practice but it's 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 definitely there they're well validated they've been well researched they've been translated into various languages and they're used all over the the world so i don't see any reason as to why we couldn't Absolutely. And I think, you know, we're talking ourselves into it here, but, you know, a large center sports surgery clinic um, with um, with a research focus um, is something we should potentially be doing. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, 
and Maria, listen, it's been a fantastic talk through both biceps and the distal biceps repairs and also um, lateral uh, elbow. Um, I, I think we'll stop there because I could talk quite honestly for another three or four conditions, but I think we'll, we'll get you back uh, and focus on one or two uh, others. But um, it's been a fantastic uh, afternoon and, and thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks for having me. Okay, Andy, bye. Absolute pleasure.